Please join me in our prayer of illumination. Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. Through Christ our Lord, amen. The Old Testament lesson this morning is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, verses 1 through 12. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. And as one from whom others hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him of no account. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. Yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By a perversion of justice he was taken away. Who could have imagined his future? For he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the rich, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain. When you make his life an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. Through him the will of the Lord shall prosper. Out of his anguish he shall see light, he shall find satisfaction through his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressions. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament lesson this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Romans, the 12th chapter, verses 1 through 8. Listen now for the word of God to the church. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and not all the members have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually we are members one of another." We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, prophecy in proportion to faith, ministry in ministering, 
the teacher in teaching, the exhorter in exhortation, the giver in generosity, the leader in diligence, the compassionate in cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In this fourth installment of the Questions to God sermon series, we turn to the long and arduous portions of the Bible that deal with sacrificial practice. Leviticus especially devotes a great deal of ink to a variety of cultic ceremonies, burnt offerings, cereal offerings, incense offerings, and all kinds of animal sacrifices, some for well-being and thanksgiving, others for repentance and purification. The most memorable rituals involved the sacrifice of living animals, birds, goats, sheep, and bulls. It all seems so pagan, the presenter of this question wrote. The person who submitted the question also rightly observed that we don't even escape this grisly sacrificial language in the New Testament. In the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation especially, Jesus' death is presented as a human embodiment of the Passover sacrifice of the Lamb. So whether we like it or not, sacrifice seems to be a foundational part of biblical faith. But how exactly is that true? And perhaps more importantly, why? Without question, ancient Israel borrowed much of its sacrificial practice from Canaanite, Assyrian, and Babylonian traditions, old systems that we would likely describe as pagan. However, as Old Testament scholar Bernard Anderson has said, a profound transformation took place in the process of that borrowing. While pagan cults saw sacrifice as a magical way of controlling the will of the gods, Israel never felt that it was manipulating the will of God. On the contrary, Israel saw sacrifice as a means of communicating with God an opportunity for two-way traffic, as Harold Rowley put it. Humans would reach out to God with a ritual recognition of need and an offer of humble submission in the hope that God would reach back to humankind with the divine power of grace, love, and restoration. Sacrifice for Israel was a sacred form of communication, an urgent cry to God that employed the harsh realities of earthly life, fire, smoke, ash, and blood, and a hope that God would respond with saving power. The Pentateuch, our fancy name for the first five books of the Old Testament, tells us that all Hebrew sacrificial practice took place on elaborately decorated altars of various types. They were essentially fancy ornamental tables. And in fact, the largest one, the bronze-gilded altar of burnt offering that was located out in the courtyard where animals were ritually sacrificed in accordance with the law, that was called the Lord's Table by the prophet Malachi. 
The priests of Israel would sacrifice the animals. They would sprinkle some of the blood on the base of the table, and then they would burn the choice portions of the offering on the flat surface of that altar. And the hope was that the smell of the cooking meat would rise up to the nostrils of God, that it would be a fragrant aroma to the Lord, and that the coveted two-way traffic of communication between God and humanity would commence. The New Testament expands this theme of two-way traffic by putting Christ himself on the table. Jesus, as the Son of God, not only takes the place of the Old Testament priest, but he himself becomes the offering that is sacrificed. His willingness to commit completely to God And his commitment to selfless love of humanity leads him to a death, even death on a cross, that opens the prison door of sin for good and puts us in everlasting communion with God. When I was in seminary, I spent a summer as a pastoral care intern at St. Mary's Hospital in Richmond. It was was and is part of the Bon Secours International Health System. In French, Bon Secours means good help, and it is the given name of a sisterhood of nuns who have always served the world as medical nurses. And as I offered pastoral care in that hospital, it did not take me long to notice that at the head of every bed in every room of that hospital, a crucifix hung on the wall right above the pillow. Now, having grown up Presbyterian, it was a new thing for me. Neither our churches nor our homes tend to display sculpted depictions of Jesus on the cross. And at that time, I wondered why that was, and you may have also wondered that. One reason is that the Protestant Reformation movement believed that a crucifix violated the second commandment, which forbids the making of any graven image or likeness of God. Even depictions of Christ in paintings and that kind of art were thought to be outside of the bounds. Now, while Martin Luther saw great value in sacred art, reformers like Huldrych Zwingli and John Calvin thought that they should be removed from all sacred spaces. So that's actually why so many Calvinist sanctuaries, like this one, are simple, straightforward, and largely unadorned. However, this rejection of even painted images of Christ was not uniformly held within the Reformed tradition. It did not take root in all corners of that tradition. And many Presbyterian sanctuaries, including the one that I grew up in, are clothed in rich colors and stained glass depicting the stories of Christ and his resurrection. So the absence of crucifixes must be about something else other than just art. The main difference I believe, has to do with sacrifice. More specifically, the sacrifice of Christ. While Catholic and Orthodox traditions understand that Christ's body is broken 
and Christ's blood is spilled every time the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is celebrated. Our Reformed understanding is that the sacrifice of Christ on the cross happened once and only once for all humanity and all time. So when we observe the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we do not imagine that we are repeating Christ's sacrifice. We are instead remembering it, giving thanks for it, and celebrating it. That is why the crosses that are displayed in Reformed places of worship are almost universally empty. On Easter morning, the angels stood outside of Jesus' empty tomb and made the earth-shaking proclamation that he is not here. And if the tomb is vacated, we have to say that so is the cross. As the joyful hymn declares, Christ is alive, let Christians sing, his cross stands empty to the sky. The empty cross still reminds us of Christ's universal sacrifice, which took place once in our time, but also echoes through eternity for all time. But there is another message that the empty cross conveys that is also important to us as disciples. The empty cross also reminds us of Christ's invitation. The calling that Christ issues to every would-be disciple, if any want to become my followers, if any want to be my disciples, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. I love the language that John Calvin uses to describe this kind of sacrifice. He says that every disciple is called to make an offering of what he calls duties of love. When we embrace our brethren with these, he wrote so many years ago, we honor the Lord himself in his members. And as Calvin saw it, included in this sacrificial offering of our duties of love would be our prayers, praises, thanksgivings, whatever else we give in the worship of God. But Calvin said the greatest and most important offering for the disciple is, and I quote here, the greater sacrifice by which we are consecrated in soul and body to be a holy temple to the Lord. For it is not enough for our outward acts to be applied to his service, but first ourselves And then all that is ours ought to be consecrated and dedicated to him so that all that is in us may serve his glory and may zealously aspire to increase it. In other words, for the true disciple, everything is on the table. The image of an empty cross invites us once again to imagine whether we are willing to put ourselves upon it. In the early part of the 20th century, modern medicine was just beginning to explore the use of local anesthesia for major surgeries. 
putting a patient completely out with general anesthesia was much more hazardous. And some doctors began advocating less drastic measures for reducing pain during even major surgeries. Dr. Evan O'Neill Kane was one of them. While many doctors were inclined to agree, few of them had tried surgery with just local anesthesia. The medical community needed proof that it would work. So Dr. Kane started looking for volunteers. He was an expert in appendectomies. He had performed nearly 4,000 in his solid career. But oddly enough, he had trouble convincing his patients to give this new method a try. Nobody seemed very keen on being a guinea pig for a new theory. Finally, Dr. Kane did find a volunteer. The patient came in complaining of abdominal pain, and the diagnosis was an inflamed appendix. And somehow, Dr. Kane convinced this guy to go under the knife using only local anesthesia. He would be awake during the entire procedure. And that patient had to have hoped that this doctor was not only excellent at his craft, but was right about the idea that he would feel little or nothing during the surgery. On February 15, 1921, in New York City, Dr. Kane began this historic operation and his theory proved to be valid. The patient complained of only some minor discomfort during the surgery. It was a momentous step for the medical community, all made possible by one brave patient who was willing to put his own life on the line. And who was that brave person? It was none other than Dr. Kane himself. Sitting on the operating table, propped up by pillows with a nurse to hold his head forward so he could see his own abdomen. Dr. Kane opened that abdomen up, worked his way down to the infected appendix, pulled it up, cut it off, and repaired his own colon. He did allow his brother, Dr. Tom Kane, to close the wound. He left the hospital the very next day. In his famous series on Narnia, C.S. Lewis allegorized the sacrificial death of Christ in a scene in which Aslan the lion is killed upon the stone table. It was a calculated literary and theological choice because it allowed Lewis's narrative, just like the gospel narrative, to connect the death of the Savior to the ancient sacrifices of Israel, those offerings that were given up to God on the brass and gold tables in the temple. That event is too complex and too important to be limited to one understanding. It is, in one way, the inevitable conclusion of a life that gave itself completely and absolutely to obedient service and love, It was, in another way, the victory of love over hate, life over death, grace over sin. And it was, we cannot deny, in many ways a sacrifice, a willingness of one 
holy man to give himself as an offering for us. To allow all the sin and despair of the world to be laid upon his own shoulders and his own body so that all others might live. But my main message here today is that we can see Christ's ultimate sacrifice just as the ancient Israelites saw their sacrifices as a way to open the door to two-way communication. Only this time that door was ripped off of its hinges, thrown away into the deepest ocean and forgotten forever so that nothing in all creation will ever separate us from, again from the heavenly communion that we have with the living God. Once and for all, the victory was won because one man, one God, was willing to put his own life on the table. Christ's sacrifice is done. The empty cross, however, remains, and it remains for us as a reminder to you and to me that we also are called to sacrifice. We are called to live sacrificially. We are called to give sacrificially and perhaps even to die sacrificially. Those are our duties of love. That is the greater sacrifice of every true disciple. So whether we like it or not, that is how, and more importantly, why, sacrifice remains a foundational part of biblical faith. And no one has ever made this point or pressed this case better than the Apostle Paul. In Ephesians, he calls us to live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Or perhaps even more powerfully, in the words of our text this morning, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God for you, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Christ is alive. Let Christians sing, his cross stands empty to the sky, but the empty cross still stands before us. Day in and day out, reminding us not to neglect the two-way traffic of conversation and communion with the living God. And it presses us with the only question that really matters for the disciple in the end. Disciple of Christ. Will you give your life as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God? Are you willing to do anything? Are you willing to go anywhere? 
My cross is empty, but will you take up your own cross and follow me? Are you willing to put it all on the table? May God give us the faith and the courage to say yes in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.